Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And this episode, as we usher in 2023, is going to be a conversation all about food and wine and restaurants and anything related to what we ingest and digest. I've interviewed a number of the world's great chefs, but I personally, if I want or need advice when it comes to food or wine, I go to Narcy David. Narcy was born a Hoosier in South Bend, Indiana, and he was raised in Chicago and Turlock, California. He's a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, a chef, a restaurateur, a winemaker, a food columnist, as well as a longtime food and wine editor for KCBS Radio and a PBS television host of the nationally syndicated Over Easy. He's a leading gourmet and culinary expert whose knowledge of food, well, and for that matter, knowledge, knowledge of food is vast, but I was going to say his knowledge of wines would probably eclipse most wine sommeliers. And he's also president of the Pacific Coast Farmers Market Association, author of a book called Monday Night at Narcy's. Very proud of his Assyrian heritage, which I hope we'll have time to talk about as well. He serves as president of the Assyrian Aid Society of America, and he's past president of the Berkeley Repertory Theater and a man of a legion number of good deeds for a host of charities. And pleased to welcome my friend Narcy David. Michael, it's wonderful to be here. And wonderful to have you. You know, I was just thinking about... <clears throat> What we might say for uh, 2023, uh, just to begin, let's start with maybe a reasonable meal. We can go soup to nuts here. This is not necessarily Last Supper, somebody waiting, you know, execution or being in the penitentiary. But if you were advising people of just a really extraordinary meal, an exceptional meal, we can begin with the appetizer and go right to the dessert. I want a Narsi kind of fantasy meal to begin with. Something really simple and easy to do. Simple, easy, and reasonable in cost. Yeah. Well, chicken is still uh, a pretty good value. I think I might start with some uh, sautéed chicken breast. In fact, uh, there was a dish that I named for uh, uh, Alex Bespaloff. He was a, uh, a, a wine writer. We got into other areas as well for New York Magazine many years ago. And I, I met him at an event and just just thought this guy was absolutely wonderful. And I wanted to see him again. And the only time he had available was lunch. So he came to our home for lunch. And I uh, cut some uh, chicken breast. I, I skinned and boned the chicken breast. Then I cut it into three or four long, narrow wedges, uh, sort of torpedo-shaped wedges, sautéed it in butter, uh, deglazed it with a little bit of um, uh, cream. And when I reached for the white wine that I thought was uh, handy. It turned out to be a bottle of Sauterne that had a little bit left in it. Well, Sauterne, as you know, is a, a sweet wine, uh, but it was handy, and I dumped it in, and by golly, it was just a match made in heaven. And from the day we opened the restaurant until the day we closed, only two dishes that made it for the entire run were <clears throat> breast of chicken Alexis Bespaloff and um, uh, my mother's uh, marinated lamb rack that was marinated in pomegranate juice. So anyway, I would use that for an appetizer because it's so simple. Uh, these days you can't afford lamb anymore, so we have to wait until that completes the cycle and comes back into some kind of a norm. And more and more people are looking for meat substitutes. I find many friends who, who just are not eating meat. We eat very little meat ourselves. But there's right, no science that's going to allow for cellular uh, renditions of meat. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're doing that already. Some of those, though, 
have such strange ingredients that I've I've shied away from them. Haven't even tried them yet. Have you tried Impossible Burgers? I'll get you off here for just a second. Uh, today. I haven't yet. No. Yeah. Um, but that one that one sounds sounds pretty interesting. Um, so I think in today's uh, market, I would buy some black bass. I'm sorry, some black cod, which is not even a true cod, but it's known as black cod on the West Coast. And if you get it in New York, suddenly its name becomes sable. So if you go into a fancy deli uh, where they have smoked salmon, they're likely to have smoked sable as well. Uh, I would get it uh, with the skin on, <clears throat> filleted, and uh, heat a pan with uh, a fairly moderate heat that takes uh, an oil that withstands high temperature and put the skin side, dust it with cornmeal and put it in this hot pan until it's just sizzling. I want to actually crisp up that skin a little and don't fall into the trap of turning it over because uh, once the meat gets tender, it's um, I don't want it to break apart when you turn it over. I just want to get that skin uh, crisp. You might, if it's not heating through totally, put a lid on it for a couple of minutes. Then when you serve it, turn it over on the plate so the skin side is up. And whatever veggies are handy for you, I love things like um, uh, snow peas and snap peas. Uh, but Michael, the price is 6 to $9 a pound for those things right now. So I would be perfectly satisfied with some string beans and a little bit of rice pilaf. Um, Sounds like a delicious meal. I think it'd be a simple meal and easy to put together. And how do you come up with recipes? I mean, I know you did uh, a thing called, uh, was it a decadent? uh, Oh, chocolate decadence. Chocolate decadence, and then there was a crispy, uh, what was the thing that was crispy I'm trying to think of? The cookie, the mudslide? The mudslide, yeah. (laughs) I mean, these are things, it's almost like creating a poem or something. I mean, where do they, they come, like you talk about the accident of just picking up uh, something that's sweet and adding it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- well, can... some of it, some of it is accidental, and some is intentional. Now, the um, uh, the um, chocolate decadence. I had a young a woman as a pastry chef in the early days of the restaurant, and she had learned uh, something like this dessert at another job she had worked. Uh, but uh, she had promised the chef that she would never reveal the recipe, and so she just made something that. Uh, was similar to her memory of what that was. And we had weekly staff meetings that brought in the catering manager, the uh, restaurant manager, um, the chef, and myself uh, on on a regular basis weekly. And we had a dinner coming up uh, hosted by a man that was a real port expert, and he wanted to serve a lot of port. So I wanted a chocolate dessert that was as rich and chocolatey and deep, dark as you could imagine. She put this together, and as we sat around the table tasting that day, uh, <clears throat> Rachel Harris, uh, who was actually, she booked the catering parties. She was in addition to the manager of catering. She said, oh, this is decadence, <laughs> chocolate decadence. And everybody at the table, you know, simultaneously said, that's it, that's it, that's the name of it, Chocolate Decadence. And and it became 
something unto its own. I was thinking also crunchy coleslaw. That was another one, I think, wasn't it, from your old restaurant Crunchy days? coleslaw we did. We made a, uh, a coleslaw that was dressed with just vinegar and a little bit of sugar and uh, some, uh, I believe it was caraway seeds. Um, when you dress cabbage with a mayonnaise, it, the whole thing gets kind of limp and it becomes a clump. And it's, I mean, I, I like mayonnaise giving it a little bit of smooth background. So if I were to make a coleslaw today, I would probably use a couple of teaspoons of mayonnaise and a teaspoon of mustard, prepared mustard, that is, and then put in some white wine vinegar uh, because I, I don't want to lose the crispness of the uh, of the greens. And getting back to this uh, archetypal... Uh, You're spilling the water here, excuse dinner. me. Oops. Thank you. Um, the special dinner that we were talking about, that we were mapping out. What about champagne and what about dessert? Oh, boy, champagne has become a real problem for me because prices... We know that prices of everything have gone really high. But gas is uh, coming down, though. As gas is finally coming down, but it's up from what it was two weeks ago. So it uh, <laughs> it, it hasn't continued the downward run. It still burps along the way. Um, finding a uh, a sparkling wine that's affordable um, among the California wines, the uh, Rotorer is uh, is pretty generally one that I would lean for automatically because it's still affordable and I don't have to get carried away with talking about the difference between champagne made in France and champagne made here. Of course, we can't call it champagne here, which, which, which is sensible. It's just a sparkling wine here. Champagne is named for the region in which it was uh, produced. And most, most fascinating to me is the bubbly that's coming from England now, if you can believe England. Uh, you think of the white chalk, white hills of Dover, the white uh, cliffs of Dover. Cliffs, yeah. Uh, that's chalk that gives it that white color, where that whole land mass above there is covered with chalk. And lo and behold, the soil in Champagne is covered with chalk. So a, uh, a grower, a farmer in the area, some five or six years ago, came out with the first bubbly. Uh, he went to Champagne and got some cuttings of um, Pinot Noir, Pinot, uh, let's see, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay, the three grapes that are grown in Champagne. And he planted them there. And I'll tell you, his very first product, product was something very, very acceptable. Within three or four years of his start, Several of the largest champagne houses have opened up down the street from him. In fact, one of them uh, did the first bottling at his location because although their winery was built, the bottling line wasn't ready yet. So uh, he let them come and bottle it there. So I would I would look for some of that. Now, we need a dessert to go with this sparkling wine you're talking about. We do, but one thing about champagne, uh, is Dom Perignon, I mean, it's out of most people's price range, is it the best champagne? Certainly has that reputation. Well, it certainly is a great champagne. Uh, I'm I'm not ready to say that any one of them is the best. Um, when you get into the classic French champagnes uh, that are vintage, uh, that that improves your chances pretty substantially. Now, Schramsberg, which is 
really the oldest continually producing wine in the in the French tradition. Um, their vintage dated uh, brut uh, is is just phenomenally good. Um, there's so many really fine bubblies out there now. And in fact, that prompts me to ask you an even tougher question before we get to desserts. Um, people seem to make uh, a sort of judgments on the basis of what country wines come from, you know, or California wines versus Italian wines or Portuguese wines or maybe even British wines, as you mentioned, England before. I mean, are those judgments kind of facile or do they have much merit to them? Because the soil is different, certainly, in all these different places. Well, fascinating enough, though, uh, the soil is similar in many, like this case of the Champagne and, uh, and England, those are two very similar growing regions because of the soil. And Napa, Sonoma have uh, areas that are so similar to Bordeaux that the reason that the Cabernet Sauvignon and the Cabernet Complex, you know, they're, in Bordeaux there are five grapes that are traditionally grown. In the old days there were seven, but there's still five, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Malbec, and Petit Verdot. And each of them contributes some or more or less. And in Bordeaux, any red wine made from any one or any blend of those is entitled to be called a red Bordeaux wine. And what they're saying is that the region is so large that some of those grapes do better on the left bank of the Gironde and some do better on the right side of the lay of the river. Uh, but a, a knowledgeable vintner puts together the blend that's going to merely work. Can you talk about wines and nationalities? Or as I said, is that just kind of uh, a thick-headed thing to do? Can you say, for example, that Spanish wines are superior generally or French wines are superior or California wines? I don't think you do that anymore. Uh, it's too years diverse. Ago, to... Yeah, 30 years ago you could have done it. But in California, uh, we make wonderful, wonderful sparkling wines. If you get uh, that same uh, Sonoma Valley we were talking about, if you get down at the southern end, uh, bordering on uh, um, on the bay uh, in, in the Carneros region, by golly, uh, or in the Anderson Valley, uh, the cool weather is just enough to really emulate much of the conditions in Champagne. And there's no doubt that they make some really fine bubbly because of that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it's easy to say the French still make the world's greatest wines, but you saw the judgment of Paris uh, was this remarkable uh, wine tasting done in England, in London, by a wine merchant uh, who brought together um, five great California Chardonnays and five great Cabernets, and he pitted them against five great white Burgundies and five great... Um, uh, clarets, as the as the British are fond to call Bordeaux wines, and it was an American wine that won in both categories. The French winemakers and wine writers and wine aficionados, who had no idea what was going on, were just tasting these things blind. And by golly, it was the Chardonnay <clears throat> made at um, made by uh, Mike Gergich at. Um, uh, um, my Chapelet, and the red was a um, Cabernet uh, made by Stag's Leap Winery. 
in the Stag's Leap District. Uh, so uh, you might say the Spanish make the best sherries. Well, I've not done a recent sherry tasting, so I can't tell you that for sure. I did open a bottle just last night of a very, very old um, Spanish um, um, sweet sherry, a uh, cream sherry, uh, that was shipped by Fortnum and Mason uh, in this fascinating old bottle. We just found it in the cellar. It was an oddity that I thought needed to be investigated. And although it was a little bit lacking in depth, uh, a little too much of its character had dropped out. It still was a wonderful wine. And Vini, my wife, loved it as an aperitif. She's, she'd be perfectly happy having a glass of that uh, every night before dinner. The singing, these French uh, who lost to the Americans didn't commit suicide like the French chefs who got one less star <laughs> uh, by Michelin. Uh, we're going to go to some questions uh, and comments in just a moment, but let's get to the dessert now. We've got this terrific Narsi meal. What would you have for a dessert? Uh, this time of year, I sure am having a good time with persimmons, um, both the Fuyu persimmon that's the one that's sort of flattened out, looks sort of like a, a small beefsteak tomato. And the hachia, which is elongated, and it looks like a great big giant acorn. Um, now, the, the hachia literally cannot be eaten until it's as soft as pudding. And we have a friend who lives down on the peninsula and every year brings us a large bag of these hachia. We have a fuyu tree of our own in Berkeley. And uh, when the hachia gets really, really ripe, you need to cut off the stem and then put the stem side down in a small plastic container or a cup or something and put it in the freezer. Once it's frozen solid, you can hold it under slow running hot tap water and you quite literally peel the skin off as, as the water warms the surface, you just wipe the skin off and then set this thing aside for, oh, maybe a half hour at room temperature if it's a large hachia. Uh, if it's a really small one, it'll only take 15 or 20 minutes. And as it tempers a little bit, cut it in quarters so that the four pieces just sort of open up tulip-like. Drizzle it with a little bit of natural maple syrup and you have mm. the most amazing you couldn't make a sorbet that would compete <laughs> with this. It's just remarkable. Yeah, and you don't have all that sugar <laughs> you have from the sorbet. Yeah, well, you get a little bit from the uh, maple syrup. Yeah, but, but not uh, no, nothing not like, like sorbet, which yes. is pure like pure right. sugar. Right. Uh, here's Chad from the Show Me State who wants to know, from cooking under vacuum to treating ingredients with liquid <clears throat> nitrogen, what trends have surprised you by moving from the restaurant and lab into the home kitchen, and what do you think is next? It's hard to imagine what's next because the change is coming so fast. Uh, <clears throat> cooking under a vacuum, I don't think the food is cooked under a vacuum. It's, it's vacuum packed to get all the air out of it, and then it's cooked um, so that you can really control, and it's, and, it's, and it's cooked very slowly in order to get it heated up to, and let's talk about meat. This is primarily meat. If, if you like rare piece of filet, um, or prime rib or whatever, uh, you could get it cooked up to about 120 degrees Fahrenheit and uh, 
the the machine, the device that controls the heat controls in your oven, uh, will just get it to that temperature and nothing more. And uh, and then you could let it cool off, and when you're ready to serve your dinner, you drop it into a bath of uh, of water which has been heated to that exact temperature that you want. And you can't do this with just water that you heat on the stove because you need a really carefully controlled temperature. And you get it up to 125 degrees, and the entire filet from one end to the other is the same temperature. You take it out, open the bag, and slice it, and it's all rare meat. So that's kind of handy. Some of the things like the... I was just given a gift of an air fryer. I... Uh, the, the, the story is still out for me. I'm not sure. Uh, it does indeed cook food with a lot less grease. I'll, I'll give it that. But I'm still dealing with the amount of splatter and cleanup that has to be done afterwards of the gadget itself. That one I'm not too sure of. But more and more new things are coming on. I see these television commercials of a meal where you open the packages that are delivered to you and scan the, the code on it directly into the oven machine that's designed to handle it and push a button and X number of minutes later, you can sit down and eat a complete dinner completely prepared. <laughs> it's, it's like magic. It's like Brave New World almost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was thinking about this. You know, you started out with uh, a hamburger joint in Turlock, California <clears throat> in this extraordinary career in life that you've had of wine and food and other libations besides wine, we should say. I mean, kind of an expert on coffee and all kinds of things that we drink. But I was just thinking about the passage of time and all that's happened, not only technologically, but, you know, we're in a world now of food trucks and, uh, you know, um, open markets and uh, the kind of technology that has revolutionized the whole food industry and wine industry. I mean, like you're talking about a whole meal that's just prepared for you. It's extraordinary where you've yeah. been, where you've gone, and where we are. And the epidemic really, really promoted much yeah. of that because the, the poor people in the restaurant industry were really struggling, really, really had a problem to stay afloat. It's fascinating to me to see that Chinese restaurants and pizza restaurants really did very well during the pandemic. And I think it's for the primary reason that they are so accustomed to preparing food for takeout. I mean, they you can't walk into a pizzeria without seeing stacks and stacks of empty flat cardboard boxes that can be used to transport a pizza. Uh, but they, excuse me, Narcy, isn't it heartbreaking, though, to think about these people who put their whole lifeblood into a restaurant <clears throat> and just went under during the pandemic because they couldn't sustain? That's, that's, it is truly heartbreaking. That's among the various sidebars of, of terror that the pandemic brought to us. Many restaurateurs lost everything. I'm saying those, like the ones in the pizza business and the Chinese food business, were able to to make out very, very well. Now, there were those that got on quickly to the changes that were needed, started promoting meals to take out, and even started offering certain groceries. Well, plus, uh, we had DoorDash and... Uh, well, then the, yeah, the delivery well, people get into it. And that's, uh, that's something that has two sides. There are people that are dead set against that. And... <laughs> and uh, 
and other and and those people are making pretty good money just picking up the food and ferrying it to you. Has um, Gerald from Richmond, Richmond, BC, British Columbia, says livestock farming accounts for between sixteen point five percent and twenty eight percent of all greenhouse gas pollution. Should we all be curtailing our meat consumption? Well, that's a loaded uh, question. A big I one. have I have dear I have a nephew who um, uh, got a uh, a PhD in uh, particle physics, and his wife is likewise a particle physicist. Uh, they're they're among the most uh, intellectual and sophisticated people I know about dealing with such things, and they have given up uh, uh, beef and lamb entirely. They'll occasionally have chicken, uh, and they're not offended by pork because neither of those animals contributes to the global warming problem nor produces the effluent that beef does. But um, I find that we're eating a lot less beef. And interestingly enough, it didn't start out with let's eat less beef. It's just that as we noticed as we were getting older, the foods that we could easily handle, uh, at least twice a week or maybe sometimes three times, we have beans. Uh, chicken, um, usually once a week. Fish, definitely once or twice a week. Um, and pork, maybe once every couple of weeks. Um, so it's rare. We, we do have, we, uh, we go to my cousin's house for Christmas Day every year, and the menu has been a filet. And everybody at the table has a filet except uh, her son and his wife, who really have, have stopped eating it entirely. Uh, but there are some traditions that, that are maintained for the rest of the family. So, yeah, we are eating a lot less beef. I would like to uh, retire from being a carnivore, but I find it very difficult <laughs> and very trying. Um, let me go to another question here from Central Florida. Hershed wants to know, some people might come from different abilities, so what would be one dish that you can suggest that one can make without much sight involved? Um. A sight meaning vision or I guess without having, having to keep track of it or having to monitor it or oh well there one dish that I like to talk about is a dish that um, that I always have the ingredients on hand to make and that's because uh, I buy um, bacon in fact in recent years I've discovered bacon ends in pieces there are several companies that sell that in a two pound container and I'll buy that and uh, chop it up into little bite-sized pieces and freeze it in, in plastic containers, uh, like eight-ounce plastic containers. There's always a, a, a collection of pasta in the pantry, and we couldn't live without onions, and they obviously uh, last a long time. And although I like to put up my own uh, tomatoes in the summer and keep them in the freezer, I'm perfectly satisfied using canned tomatoes. It's one of the few things that don't get mucked up too much in processing. It's just tomatoes. Read the label carefully because there are others that have additives, but most of them. So there are always tomatoes in the house, there are onions in the house, and there's that little bit of bacon, and there's some pasta. Now, you, whether you use the, the um, 
ends in pieces the way I do, or the way we used to do it in the old days. I would just get a pound of bacon and put the whole thing in the freezer, and you could take it out frozen and cut off quarter-inch strips across the end of the uh, slices, brown those in the pan, uh, along with some uh, chopped up onion, add the can of tomatoes, and while that's simmering, you boil the pasta, whichever you'd like, whatever shape you feel like that day, you put those two things together, sprinkle a little cheese on top, and you've got a meal. I mean, you're guaranteed to be able to put together an easy meal. It's always going to taste fresh, and it's ingredients that you've just always got on hand. Makes it easy, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I've been giving tips for so long to so many. I mean, there are people who have you to thank for whatever meals they're having on even a customary basis, let alone you know just filling in for time sake, uh, with a meal that they want to, uh, make fast. I remember I interviewed Jacques Pepin once, uh, with that book of his, where he talks about things that you can whip up very quickly. It was very useful. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and makes it easy really in terms of what you have to do. It's also thinking about, again, all these changes that have occurred and accrued through the years. Um, you've been in Berkeley for many years and, I remember, I don't know if it was uh, either Calvin Trillin or um, maybe it was Tom Luddy, one or the other, who said, I think both of them may have said it at different times. They said, here we were thinking we'd bring about a revolution in the 60s, and the only one who really started a revolution was Ellis Waters. <laughs> There's some truth to that, really, isn't there? Uh, there is somewhat, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the time. Alice opened Chez Panisse in... Uh, late in 1972, and we opened Narcy's in April of 73, so they were four or five months, six months apart. And when Bon Appetit magazine came out with an article saying that uh, Narcy's and Chez Panisse were serving California cuisine, I called Alice and said, hey, what is, what is California cuisine? <laughs> and she said, I thought I'd ask you the same question. <laughs> I mean, with the fact is we were doing the kinds of things we felt like doing. I would I would uh, also add that the style of cooking was clearly heavily French-influenced. French sauté cooking was really at the soul of what we did at Narcy's. And, um, and, and Chez Panisse cooking was pretty much inspired by French style as well. Um, and, but there's no question that the dedication to fresh and not frozen... My previous restaurant involvement was the potluck. I ran the potluck restaurant from 1959 to 1970. I became a manager early on. I mean, I was a manager since from 1959, and I became a, a small partner in it. I'll tell you that the beef filet we bought was frozen bull filet, which was the least expensive way you could buy a piece of filet. And since the filet is an internal muscle, it A, does not have much fat in it, and B, does not get much exercise, so it's going to always be tender. Um, and um, the vegetables were frozen, these large two, two-and-a-half-pound containers of frozen veggies that were just tossed into, dumped into a pan uh, flavored with um, uh, that powdered chicken soup base. Um, and speed was was the... The driver, you put things together and, and they worked perfectly well. But as we got more sophisticated, we wanted to go to the farms and get the specific food. We would go to the Napa Valley and harvest uh, 
uh, mustard blossoms uh, in the springtime to put in the salads and in some of our marinades. Uh, mussels, you know, in the old days, mussels were not even controlled by fish and game. They were controlled just by the health department because the fear of toxins from uh, the red tide uh, getting into the mussels at certain times of the year was such that it was considered a health department problem. Well, we would go down to my favorite spot uh, uh, down near Half Moon Bay uh, and collect mussels, drop off a sample at the state health department, which fortunately was located right in Berkeley in those days, and they would run their tests on it overnight. And in the morning, I'd get the go-ahead from them that the test was clear and we could use those mussels. Uh, well, nowadays, mussels are farmed particularly for the restaurant industry, but for everybody. Uh, so a lot of things have changed as a result of this movement to fresh, not frozen, and uh, fresh, not prepared, and fresh, not diddled with. We've also got too much mercury and too many other toxins, don't we? Oh, my goodness. They're, look for them and you'll find them. <laughs> and we try to be careful to avoid them. Let me go to some more of our uh, listeners here. Um, this is Chris Clark from Tempe, Arizona, who says, I love fine food, but I'm not a food or wine expert. My strategy is to ask the waiter for his or her recommendations and have never been disappointed. Does this strategy make sense to you as a chef? I think it's a wonderful idea. My wife's favorite saying about restaurants is something that she copied from that old television program, uh, Cheers. To go to a place um, where it feels like home, where where you know people and the people know you. And this this person who finds a waiter that is comfortable enough, feels comfortable enough to him to take his advice for what to eat, that means you've probably found a place where you're comfortable enough to want to go back. I think that's an excellent idea. It's also an important touchstone to why people do go back to restaurants. They feel it's like home or it's comfortable or they almost feel a sense of community. What other things, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what you should look for in a restaurant. I mean, all the Yelp things notwithstanding and all the reviews that we've become accustomed to, uh, most people say the food, actually, or the prices. And then you get into service, and then you get into atmosphere and all those other things. But food and prices seem to be right at the top. Oh, I think prices has uh, has become the number one element across the board. It is, it, fr frankly, it's astonishing to me. Having spent my life pretty much in the restaurant business, uh, I just, I shake my head at these menus. I, you know, people recommend a place that I think of trying, and I look at the menu online, and I'm finding myself thinking, wow, do I really want to spend that much money for that kind of a meal? Um, it is a totally new world. In the first place, restaurants are having the hardest time in the world finding help. The, epi the, the epidemic just screwed everything up. The lower-paid workers couldn't afford to stick around here. Many of them who were expatriates from uh, Central and South America packed up and went back home because they couldn't afford to stay around. And uh, so there's that low-cost labor that was available is no longer available, and they have to raise their prices. And if you've seen what's happened to the price of groceries, I, I was stunned the other day to see a head of cauliflower 
was going to cost seven dollars. A seven dollars for I mean, what's cauliflower is not very important to our health. A head of romaine, a head of iceberg lettuce, five and six dollars. Wow! Now for a restaurant, which is going to buy that stuff a little bit less expensive, maybe twenty percent cheaper, um, for them to then pay somebody a a living wage to prepare it and freshen it up, and then get it on a plate and then get it to you at the table. It's frankly very easy to see why the younger generation is really hip to the uh, fast casual restaurants. I'm I'm so imbued with the thought of a restaurant being a place I go to be made to feel better. You know, restaurateur, simple, it's a French word that means a restorer. One goes to a restaurant to be restored. And... Um, the the young people who have found the uh, fast casual are going to get a meal, and they don't mind having to get up and walk across the room to fill their glass of water. They don't mind paying for the food first and then sitting down with it. Well, in a funny way, as I say that, my mind flashes on those days working in the drive-in restaurant business where people pulled up in their cars and young women in roller skates, rolled out to the car and brought the meal to them, and they ate it in the car. Uh, boy, that was fast casual <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, uh, you're getting me feeling nostalgic here. Uh, <laughs> you go to another. Uh, this is someone from Cape Town, uh, South Africa, Damianti, uh, who says, "Your thoughts on herbs and spices? Do you incorporate them in your dishes?" Very sure much do. so. Yeah, I spent a long time trying to find. <clears throat> a Middle East herb called za'atar. And there are some references to it that say it's uh, oregano. There are others that say it's thyme. Uh, first of all, the word is used two different ways in the, um, in the Middle East. It's both used as the name of an herb, and it's also in Lebanon used as the name of a mixture of that herb with sesame seed and sumac. Uh, and the extent of my research has established that it's probably this thing called Syriac oregano. And I found a, uh, a company in the East that has a, a listing of it in their catalog. So I bought the seeds and Do you remember the them. company's name? Oh, boy. I do not. Because that's but, probably um, interesting. You could look it up. Yeah, sure. but if you look up Syriac yeah. oregano, I think you'll find it. You may have to search a little bit. Uh, and I'm growing it in the garden, and I'm very, very pleased with it. I also have a lot of marjoram growing. Uh, I have some oregano that I brought down from a friend's home, uh, a summer home they have up in the mountains, and it is phenomenal. Now, there, there are variations on these things, and you may get one uh, hybrid that is not as good as another one, but experiment a little bit. Uh, so... We happen to have a bait tree in the backyard. It's a 45-foot-tall, giant monster of a tree, but it's the true Mediterranean bay, and I use that the bay leaves a lot, particularly in my bean dishes. But the, um, the oregano, the uh, Syriac oregano, which I'm calling za'atar, and the um, marjoram are the three that I seem to be using most of. <clears throat> 
Thank you for the question, and I'll thank uh, Benjamin for this question. Benjamin, joining us from New York City, wants to know, for someone getting started in cooking, what are the most important things I need to focus on first? Just getting interested in cooking. I would, I would want to get a good set of knives. I feel there are three knives that are absolutely important to me. Um, one is a small paring knife. One is a, uh, in the industry, it's called a boning knife it's, or a utility knife. The blade is perhaps five to six inches long and no more than a half inch uh, in width. Uh, and it's just a handy knife. And then a small French knife. Now, if you're starting a French knife with a, a six inch, a six inch blade, six or seven inch, is small enough, you ought to be able to handle it. I was at a conference in Australia some years ago, some food event, and at the break, uh, they had a local manufacturer that was showing these new knives he had created. Uh, it was stainless steel with a hollow handle so that it was nice and lightweight. Um, and I was concerned because this, it was so smooth that I was, I was fearful that it, it would slip, that you couldn't grip it easily enough. And um, uh, he, he finally said, look, I think you should just take one of these home and try it. And he reached under the counter and gave me one in a package. And I fell in love with that. Um, so start I, with knives? Yes, yeah, start with knives. Get three knives, uh, the little paring knife, the boning knife, and a French knife that you feel comfortable using. That would be the very first thing. Next thing is cookware. Uh, I like to cook on uh, pots that have an aluminum base, but a stainless steel cooking surface. And there are more and more varieties of those. It started out with a company called Allclad, and uh, it's grown now so that many companies are doing that. So we haven't even gotten to food yet. Well, but he's talking Just, about the beginnings. Yeah, you uh, need the stuff before you, gotta you get be able the food. To, you got to be able to deal with it, the food, when you bring the food home. You need a good stove or oven, uh, I mean, well, a, a, a good, good microwave. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't have a microwave in the house to this day. Uh, and there are a few times, I must confess, that I have thought I might have been able to use a microwave if over here, like if I have something in the freezer that needs to be defrosted instantly. <laughs> uh but, it's very handy for that. Yeah, yeah it is. I'm sure it is. There's um, also in your personal history, there, there, aside from restaurants and wine merchants and vineyard and so much uh, of a panoply of things that have to do with the palate and eating and digesting, also did some catering. And I just want to talk about that a bit with you because I know there's a great story about you catering a 50th anniversary for Ernest Gallo, but you also did some catering for the Rolling Stones because you connected with Bill Graham. And uh, if I'm correct about this, I think did some catering for the royal family, didn't you? Well, not directly for the royal family. There were was one event in which uh, the mayor of San Francisco at the time, Diane uh, uh, Feinstein, uh, hosted a reception for uh, the queen and her uh, husband at the Wattis Room of the uh, Symphony Hall. Um, it's a sort of private dining area uh, that's used for receptions and parties. And we catered that. And the most memorable part of it to me was uh, when 
uh, the queen and uh, and her prince arrived, uh, we were all told to form into kind of a circle, and the mayor would take uh, take the two of them around and introduce us. And uh, when they got to me, um, and the prince heard my name, he said, and he asked about the name was such an unusual name. I said it was an Assyrian name. Well, he launched into a history of the Assyrian Empire, and uh, oh boy, people around me were sort of agog at here's Narsi chatting with the prince about <laughs> his Assyrian ancestry and what the Assyrians have or haven't done. <laughs> it was it, it was quite memorable. And Philip loves to talk about history. Supposedly. Oh, he and, did indeed, and, and he really understood that history of that period. And, and let's talk about your Assyrian heritage, which I know, as I said, you're very proud of and been very involved in. In fact, I did a program once with, uh, up in Iraq, a lot of those Assyrian artifacts and ancient uh, treasures were essentially plundered and yes. uh, and a lot of them were lost. And uh, when, it, we, when we did a whole investigation of that, a uh, whole program on that, uh, which you brought to my attention. I mean, this has been important to you not only as far as food and your mother's lamb stew, this has been vital to you in terms of your traditions. Yeah, both my parents were Assyrians, and they not, came— By the way, not to be confused with Syrians. Right. No, these are Assyrian. Right. And uh, my father was born in southeast <clears throat> Turkey, and my mother in northwest Iran. Uh, and that was really the ancient homeland, reaching down into northern Iraq and a little bit of northeast Syria. And um, they came as a result of the First World War uh, to the United States— landed in Chicago, and uh, a lot of Assyrians came to Chicago because that's, Chicago and its environs, because that's where jobs were for newcomers. And many people from, think of Saroyan when they think of Assyrians. Yeah, he's, a, he's an Armenian, first cousin. We think of the Armenians as first cousins, even though um, uh, biologically we're not, uh, but I, I guess emotionally and religiously, we are because the Armenians and the Assyrians were both Christians, and uh, we all know about the Armenian genocide. In truth, a larger percentage of the Assyrian population was destroyed in the genocide than either the Greek or the Armenian. Forgive but, me, we know about the uh, Armenian genocide, although when I interviewed number of years ago, the ambassador from Turkey, ambassador of the United States from Turkey, said there was no Armenian. Oh, Jews. yeah, of course. Just they ask, continue to deny it, just like Holocaust deniers. Ask any Turk and he'll tell you there was no such thing. These people just magically died because they were, look, they looked a little different than, than the others. But um, they came to the United States, and as I say, many, many Assyrians landed in and about Chicago. There were the steel mills in uh, Gary, Indiana, and the uh, the cars in, in Michigan and, and also in South Bend, um, the stockyards and uh, meat processing. There were lots of jobs that wanted people who didn't have to speak the language but was willing to do the work. I'm thinking Carl Sandburg, you know, hog okay. butchers of the world, yeah. and, uh, a Chicago yeah. poet. Right. Yeah. And yet, as soon as they had enough money to move, they wanted a place like home. They wanted the warm uh, climate of the old country, and they wanted a place where they could grow their uh, garden of tomatoes and, and vegetables and grow grapes and make wine. And, um, Shut off my phone. 
This has never happened to me before. I, I make jokes about people I used to interview who left their phones on. <laughs> Today was the first for me, leaving my phone on. Sorry. Okay, that's all right. And um, my, uh, my answer for how they happen to be in Turlock comes this way. Um, I was in, uh, I went and found my mother's birthplace in 1974 in Northwest Iran. Um, I've never been able to get to my dad's place because it's just not that easy to, to, uh, get around some of the obstacles. But in 1976, I was in Granada, uh, in Spain. And for the duration of the trip, I kept thinking about Turlock and Ada, my mother's hometown in Iran. Turlock and Ada, Turlock and Ada. And this was in the days before we had uh, an, an encyclopedia in our breast pocket in the form of an iPhone. Um, I got home, and Vini, my wife, could tell you, the first thing I wanted to do was grab an encyclopedia. And I pulled out this encyclopedia and looked at a map and found that Turlock, Granada, and Urmi, or Ada in Urmi, were within 17 miles of the same line of latitude. So now when they say, how did the Assyrians end up in Turlock? I know how they ended up in Turlock. They, they knew they had to go to California, and somebody was on that uh, daylight train coming up to San Joaquin Valley, and in Turlock, they got off to get a cup of coffee and sort of, you know, felt the weather and said, gee, let's, let's take a look around here. Let's just, this place feels comfortable. And by golly, they bought a 10-acre piece of land, and they wired their brother in Chicago and their cousin in South Bend and their uncle in uh, Detroit, and the move started. When I graduated high school in 53, the population of Turlock was 7,000. It's now 75,000 and climbing rapidly. Uh, there is a state college, California State in uh, Stanislaw County. It's called Cal State Stanislaw, or Stan State for short, uh, with lots of Assyrians growing even more so by the day. So um, that that's sort of a, a, a quick touchstone. Uh, as for contemporary things that we're doing, I was, uh, I ran the Assyrian Aid Society. I'm no longer the, the president. I'm now emeritus. Um, for over 20, 24 years, I believe it was. And we've been raising money uh, and are still raising money to help the Assyrians in northern Iraq. Uh, we built schools. We translated the entire Arab curriculum into Assyrian, printed, paid the cost of printing the books in Assyrian. We have a couple of dormitories where the kids are brought in from the re remote villages and spend the week in that dormitory uh, and then get a ride back to their homes for Saturday and Sunday and then come back the following week. Uh, we have classes that have graduated high school, gotten some college education, and come back to teach. Uh, this, this current year, the Assyrian Aid Society sent just over a million dollars to uh, northern Iraq. That's great. So it's 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 working really very, very well. Re rewarding. So much of what you've done, as I said, you've done uh, enough good, <coughs> good deeds to ensure your pathway to heaven. I think. 
Um, here's Emily, who's listening to us in Los Angeles. How does running a restaurant kitchen change the way you cook at home? Um, you certainly learn shortcuts, and you learn how being prepared is the important thing. Get the ingredients lined up uh, and cleaned. For instance, I, I don't think I could cook without garlic and onion. And the first thing I do inevitably is to peel an onion or two and uh, put some garlic cloves on a table and smash them with the side of my uh, French knife so I could easily peel them. But get your the ingredients that you're going to use lined up so that once you put the fire on under that pot or pan, you've got things there that you need to dump into it. And one little hint I like to throw out is that I have just in these last few years become very, very enamored of using miso, M-I-S-O. It's a simple uh, vegetable paste uh, based on fermenting soybeans, uh, but there are many variations of it. You can find miso made from mushrooms and and other varieties of beans and, and other kinds of things. You think Japanese miso soup, right? Japanese miso soup, and it, miso originally is from Japan. And the beauty of it is that that fermenting process develops the umami. Remember, umami is the, the newly discovered uh, fifth flavor beside uh, sweet, bitter, salty, and sweet. Yeah, sweet, bitter, salty, and sour. And it, it sort of makes your mouth water. Well, you can, I use that basically 90% of the time it replaces salt in my cooking because I get a lot more umami with a lot less um, salt in my diet. It just builds flavor really beautifully. So important to keep salt uh, on a lower level, just like sugar and exactly. other things. We're all very mindful of those right. things now, which we weren't when you were working with the uh, women on rollerblades. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, again, amazing advancements. Uh, what do you think about cilantro? Um, I mean, there's actually a genetic predisposition for certain people not to like the taste of cilantro. and let, It's in so many things. I don't like it, personally. Um, to be honest with you, I have not resolved that issue yet. Um, I don't dislike it, but since the, the character of it is so evanescent, it just disappears if you try to cook with it. Uh, I, I just don't bother with it in my cooking. But I remember in the early days when it was for the first time making its way out of the Chinese uh, restaurants and out of the Chinese markets and into common use. And wow, people insisted that they were allergic to it or that it made them sick or that something was wrong when they had it. And I've never been able to figure that out because when people have had it without knowing they were having it, they didn't seem to have any problem with it. Um, so I just don't like the taste. Of it's it. just yeah, yeah, it doesn't have it doesn't have much to offer for me. It's it looks pretty on the on the plate, and Chinese restaurants is still where you find it most commonly. Well, since you mentioned Chinese restaurants, I don't think you find monosodium glutamate the way you used to. Uh, right. I mean, but it used to be uh, people would go in and order without the MSG. Right? right. Yeah, because and and they cut back on MSG pretty pretty dramatically. Now. Um, some MSG occurs naturally in things like various forms of seaweed, and a lot of seaweed is being used in contemporary cuisine. And 
an MSG is natural, naturally occurring in some root vegetables and in other uh, vegetables. So it's not, it's not that it's an evil thing. It's just an excessive amount of it becomes evil. As a Central Florida listener, Hershey Trevidi wants to know, what would you pair a red or a rose wine with, a vegetarian dish? Uh, a rosé would be easy to, uh, to pair with a veggie dish. Uh, the red wine gets a little bit tougher. Now, if you are using a spicy recipe, uh, if, it's, if it's got some heat or a lot of robust flavors uh, with miso and so forth, I would still stay with a light red wine. Um, light as in Beaujolais in the French wine or in California uh, wine, uh, Gamay, um, a, um, well, I wouldn't say Pinot Noir, but if you could find a light Zinfandel, light Zinfandel, a light a Gamay, well, any Gamay um, would be a good starting place. Who makes these decisions about what wines go with best with, uh, I mean, I guess it's just from sampling over and over again, but the people take it almost as gospel, some people, right? Well, some people, and some people get away with uh, with murder that way, too. Uh, <laughs> there, there are not too many things out there that, um, uh, I mean, one man's meat is another man's poison. How was that line? Uh, I don't think there's anything that's <clears throat> so evil that you absolutely have to despise it uh, in the way of food. It's just that you find a better balance with some things than others. Here's um, Reed up in Santa Rosa wants to know, I wonder how Narcy feels about coffee. Coffee, I was going to ask you about that. Thanks, Reed. <clears throat> coffee making, I love the flavor of mocha pot coffee. And how about oat milk? As a matter of fact, I have become a convert to oat milk. That same nephew uh, the who physicist. was not eating any beef, the physicist, yeah. uh, talked me into it. Um, and the, the one I use is Oatly. Um, it... Um, it's pretty neat stuff, and I learned something new from him just this year at Christmas, that the the one with the highest fat content, which I had avoided just because I felt I didn't need the extra fat, um, has one a, a particular fat that is very, very exclusively destined to help the brain. And I thought, Boy, I got to get back to that. So I went out and as soon as my, my I just poured over my cereal every morning. I have a large bowl of fruit with some dry cereal and the oatly over it. And I am rapidly getting accustomed to having the, the high fat version. There's a whole science now about food and how it affects different parts of the body. And in fact, uh, it goes back, even my mother saying, eat fish, it's good brain food, you know, yeah. these kinds of things. <clears throat> Some of those have turned out to be true. Absolutely. We used to call them bubba mices, you know, yeah. back in my yeah. day. One uh, final question from one of our partners, Chad, uh, with us down in Columbia, Missouri. He says, taste and smell are intricately linked to memory. Where and when do your favorite foods take you? Well, I'm thinking Proust here, maybe Madeline's, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Ah, uh, Yes. The smell of my mother's uh, rice. Uh, when we were kids, uh, frequently the Sunday meal was her lamb stew, uh, always with rice. And her rice pilaf 
had so much butter in it, and she always sought the the longest grain uh, she could find. And on a rare occasion, somebody would have been uh, visiting the Middle East and come back with a kilo of one of those long grain aromatic rices, <clears throat> similar to uh, basmati of these days. And <clears throat> that was very rare. But the regular long grain prepared the way she did it with enough butter on it was something on, on my plate, I always, always, always had the rice on one side and the stew on the other side of the plate. I thought it was heresy to put the stew on the rice because that just made the rice be part of the stew. I wanted to taste the rice itself, and, and I make rice today the same way. Uh, I just discovered a new variety. Well, it's not new, an ancient variety, but it's new to me. Uh, Ember, Emba Mohar. E-M-B-A-M-O-H-A-R. It's from India, and it's a tiny little grain. It's uh, I've always associated the aroma, aromatic, the really aromatic, beautiful rices with very long grain, like the basmati. Uh, but by golly, this tiny little grain uh, cooks quickly and uh, is even less expensive than the basmati. Uh, I go to this Indian market in Berkeley, and uh, he has more varieties of basmati there than I've ever seen or dreamt from different shippers and different processors and so forth. And this stuff is is worth searching for because it cooks very quickly, and it's simple and easy to deal with. Another great tip. Always a delight to talk to you. I've learned so much, and our listeners learned so much from you. And uh, you're one of the few people I know who still says, by golly. You know, which, <laughs> I just love that. Uh, thanks, Narcy. Uh, by golly, it's great to see you, Michael. I it's can tell you that you. for sure. Thank you. And many thanks to uh, those of you who joined us for today's episode. And to find out more about Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, simply go to graymatter.show. And please send your friends and lovers and confidants there as well. We're a growing community, definitely worth not only keeping up with, but joining, and we welcome new members. And thanks also to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And a special thanks to this special guest today, Narcy David. In the meantime, eat and drink healthily and heartily, and have a happy, safe, and healthy New Year. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.